I realize I already gave you my blessing on this, Clark, but I don't want to lie to you. This whole thing makes me feel uneasy. Dad, we've been watching Met You football games since I can remember. Now they're knocking on my door. I know that, and I'm, I'm proud of you for it. Then why can't I have a shot at what every other high school kid dreams of? Because you're not like every other high school kid, Clark. On that field, I am. I'm not even using my abilities. And I can be the new starting quarterback for the Metropolis Bulldogs. There's going to be millions of eyes on you. You're going to be under a magnifying glass. I've pulled it off before. Clark, Met U is not like Smallville High. It's a much bigger stage. There's going to be, so, there's going to be much bigger problems. You always told me not to walk away from something just because it's a challenge, Dad. I can do this. I know that you can handle it. I also know that you'll behave yourself this weekend. Stay clear of any of the beer kicks. Don't worry. Alcohol can't affect me, remember? That's not the point. You're still underage. Look, son, I just don't want you to get booted out before you get in, all right? Okay. Now, there's one more thing. It's very important. This is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Have a great time. Somebody save me indeed. Hello and welcome to Farm to Fable, a Smallville rewatch fancast. I am your forever host, Michael, and I'm also the host of the RPG Academy podcast, where I talk mostly about role-playing games, but all tabletop gaming in general. I also organize a three-day gaming convention held in Dayton, Ohio, each November. Before we get started, please be advised that Farm to Fable may include adult language and reference adult behavior. Please consider us PG-13 in regards to content acceptability for your young ones. Also, this is your spoiler warning. While we will focus on each episode week to week, our discussions may and likely will reference the entire series run and the wider Superman mythos. You can email our show at smallvillefancast at gmail.com with any comments, concerns, or questions. Please follow us on Twitter at Farm2Fable and join our Facebook group page at Smallville Farm to Fable. With all of that out of the way, let's meet today's co-host. Howdy, cats and kittens. Coming at you from the .5 Pass Black and Blue studio, I am the Caleb G. It is such a pleasure to have you back on the mic, to the point that I missed having you on so much that I purposefully forgot to hit record last time we had this exact recording. So this is actually the second take of this episode, dear listener. So you may find us maybe getting going through it a little faster than usual. That's because we've actually done this before. But let me, go ahead. I was going to blame it on some sort of kryptonite and give you the out, but you just took ownership of it. So I applaud your honesty. Yeah, there's, I mean, again, I, uh, (laughs) I'm a colossal screw up. I'll own it. So yeah, I, uh, we've, we've been podcasting for about 10 years. Yeah. We, you and I have been podcasting together for about eight. We actually talked a lot about this last time. I'm going to bring it up again this time. (laughs) And over that course of time, we've recorded, I have, I have personally been on somewhere around 600 episodes of podcasts. Now, some of those are like actual plays that we played for like four hours. They got cut into five episodes, but still. I, I am personally on 600, easily 600 hours of podcast. And in that time, there's probably been half a dozen times where there's been a colossal audio screw up on my side. 
happens a lot with the guests. And again, I'm not I never hold anybody to account. But when you don't have people who podcast regularly, their audio usually isn't as good as ours. You can have more problems with the background noise, stuff like that happens. Okay, I always just brush it off. But for me to not only not double check Audacity and then to fail to do the backup recording through Zoom is unforgivable. So I do ask you for forgiveness, though. I know you've been very patient and, and you know been very cool about this, but I do feel bad that I've wasted over two hours of your time and then have to ask you to do this again. Michael, it is never a waste of time to spend time with you. Oh. We have been recording for a long time. We worked together for a long time and I, uh, I, feel, I feel bad that I had to step away from the mics for so long. This is a hobby I love a lot. I love spending time talking about games and movies. I love talking with you. I love talking with all of our guests and friends here at the Academy. I'm so glad to be back on the mics here on Farm to Fable. Thank you for inviting me back. It is always a pleasure. I am happy to sit down here in the studio that I built in the new house, even though it's kind of janky, but it's fun. I like being here. It, it is a lot of fun. And again, I, we, I went on about it at length last time. The, the shortened version is, because I don't remember if we've ever fully disclosed this or not, but you were the second full-time guest co-host or co-host on the RPG Academy. Yeah. You've been the longest. We podcasted together for about seven years, really consistently. Yeah. And all of the crazy, stupid ideas that I kept coming up with, you're the person going, yeah, we should do that. Yeah, that's a great idea. So while I do blame you in part, I also, I love the fact that you have been able to put up with me and it's not always easy. I understand that I get wild hairs and I go off on tangents and I get, you know, strong headed and I get these ideas in my head, but you were a stalwart companion the Academy never would have reached the heights that it did. Again, we've been nominated for any two times in a row. For people who don't know, that's a big deal in the RPG podcast world. We started a convention together. There's a lot of stuff that I would not have if I didn't have you in my life. I, I truly count you as a friend. You're a person I met on the internet, and you're now one of my closest friends. And I thank you for that, sir. It is humbling to hear those kind words. Thank you. It is a pleasure to have worked with you so much over these past years. We've been through a lot of hijinks and adventures. The first time I met you in person was the unofficial Acaticon in your old house, in your basement. Mm. And I, I, drove, I drove to a stranger's house and we played games for a couple days. It was great. And was. here we are now. That's right. On top of the podcasting world. So with that. Forget to record. (laughs) Bringing it back. All right. So we're going to kick off the show, uh, as we always do here, with our Pass the Torch question. So last week, Neil wanted me to ask, if you were Clark and you're going to reveal yourself to a soon-to-be confidant, what power or what way would you disclose that? How would you show off and prove to someone that you are, in fact, super? So I think it's got to be super strength or super speed. Some of Clark's other abilities are easy to explain away or fake. I think going out and picking up a tractor, that's pretty difficult to fake. Uh, I think super speed would work like, hey, tell me what you want from New York. You want me to check the weather in Taipei? I don't know. 
I, I, you know, since this is the second time we've done it, I also think invulnerability would be a good one, mm-hmm. but you'd have to convince them to like hit you. Like, right. no, for real, light my hand on fire. No, I'm fine. No, that one's tougher. Cause you got to get like their engagement on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could always just say, Hey, look, I'm going to walk into this fire or, Hey, see this giant crushing farm tool. I don't know farm <laughs> tools. Let me stick my hand inside this combine. So that actually is what happened at one point uh, early. I think it's in season one when Clark is talking to his parents about something and they're trying to take care of him. He, he, he sticks his arm down like a wood chipper. Uh, and I remember making fun of him because why would he need to destroy what is probably a multi-thousand dollar piece of equipment just to show this <laughs> off? But I, I think me and you both agreed last time, super strength, super speed. But, but the same thing, this is the second day. I think invulnerability would be a good way to go about doing it. But you would have to set it up in a way that, you know, it doesn't cause your friend too much trauma because they may think like, oh, I've just hurt them or they've just got hurt. Yeah. But I think the easiest is super strength. Yes, it could be easy to fake, but it would be really easy to prove it wasn't fake. Like after you do a thing and they're like, oh, that's just a fake. And then you hand it to them and, it, you know, the, the, the anvil drops and they get pulled to the ground. They're going to go, OK, no, that wasn't actually a fake thing. That was a real thing. So, yeah. I mean, there's some other ways. Again, heat vision would be cool. Uh, super speed's a good one. Uh, breath would be a good one. If you could like somehow rip an S off your chest and it turns into like a cellophane envelope <laughs> and captures an alien and throws them into a pit, that would be cool. There's a lot of setup for that one, but if you yeah. can pull it off, it is choice. It is, absolutely. All right. And then so for this week's super superlatives, um, we're going to go with most shippable couple. So obviously Smallville, there's a lot in the story about Lana and Clark, eventually Lois and Clark, and there's also Chloe and maybe Clark, and then Chloe with other people, and then Lois with other people. So there's, a, there's been a lot of couples. So I want to hear from you, dear listener, about maybe a couple that didn't get the screen time that we wanted or we thought would be good. Who is your most shippable couple? Seasons one through four only, please. All right, so with that out of the way, let's open our small boy yearbook and see who our notable guest stars are. Hey, Clark, look who came to check up on you. This week, we have Erica Durance as Lois Lane. And we also have Colby Johansson, Johansson as David Coop Cooper. And we have Chris Carmack as Jeff Johns. Uh, the name of that character is very clearly an homage to the very prolific comics writer, Jeff Johns, who's written for Marvel and DC. Jeff Johns himself will actually will go on to write episodes for season eight and nine of Smallville. All right, so now it's time to grab a copy of this week's Daily Planet and check the bylines to see who brought us the episode. I mean, that's a story that could land you a byline on the front page of the Daily Planet. So we're here tonight for the second time, to discuss season four, episode 13, Recruit. The date of original airing was February 9th, 2005. The character of Superman was created by Jerry Sagal and Joe Shuster, and Smallville was created by Alfred Goff and Miles Miller. The writers for this episode, Todd Slavkin and Darren Swimmer. And the director for this episode is Janot Zwark. Who, uh, again, if you're not familiar, though you are because I told you this last time, is also the director of the Supergirl movie. So, Caleb, are you now ready to explore the Kawachi Caves to get a glimpse of where we came from as well as where we may be going? Let's go. All right, let's do it. In an effort to recruit Clark for the university's football team, Metropolis University sends its star player, Jeff Johns, to show Clark the advantages of attending Met U. 
And that's great and all, but it doesn't tell us what we really need to know. So let's dig a little deeper into these caves and ask the important questions. Does this episode feature a vehicle crashed or otherwise destroyed? No. Does this episode feature someone falling unconscious for any reason? Not really. Does this episode feature someone in a hospital bed? Yes. Does this episode feature Clark telling or showing someone besides his forever crush Lana his powers and abilities? Chloe couldn't not see him, but no. But she already knows. But she already knows. So, okay. So no one knew. Yeah. Now he doesn't know that she knows, of course. Right. Um, follow up. Does that person die, lose their memory, or otherwise become unable to share this knowledge, or do they become a confidant of Clark? Uh, eventually, Chloe will be a confidant. So, yeah. yeah, sort of. Does this episode feature Clark use his powers irresponsibly? Debatable. He definitely could have gotten to Lois faster. And we can argue that any use of his powers playing football is incredibly irresponsible. So I agree. Yeah. Uh, does Clark casually break and enter a business or residence? Not on screen, but he definitely broke into the car dealership. Yes. Does this episode feature a moment where character travels a seemingly long way to have a short conversation and then leave? Yes, especially Lois. <laughs> Does this episode feature a conversation between two people where one person has their back to the other and is weirdly talking over their shoulder? Yes, but it is not the typical power move. Was the person talking weirdly over their shoulder? Lex. Yes, and also Clark. Does this episode feature a particularly thirsty moment for one or more of our characters? Yes, but Clark's a dummy and doesn't care. Thirsty. Does this episode feature a cheeky bit of dialogue that hints at or directly references the wider Superman mythos? You said no, I said yes, but they're pretty subtle, so somewhere in the middle. Fair enough. Does this episode feature a moment with a needle drop wherein a contemporary song perfectly sums up a character's thoughts and or desires? You said no, I said yes, we'll talk about it when we get there. Yeah, having, Ian, done this before, you brought me around to your side, so I would say yes as well at this point. Fair enough. And finally, does this episode feature a classic small but leap of logic wherein the characters jump to a correct conclusion around who or what is behind some mysterious event, or otherwise solves a problem with little to no actual information to base such conclusions? Maybe a small leap here and there. Agreed. All right, so now that we have a clear roadmap of where we're going, let's use our x-ray vision and look closely at this week's episode. At a party on the MetU campus, Lois is involved in a drinking game competition, which she wins. Football star Jeff Johns tries to intervene, but the other players won't back down until they're fully beaten by Lois. On the way home, one of the players tries to come on a little too strong, and Lois knocks him to the ground. She's awoken the next day by the police and arrested for having paralyzed this football player during that altercation. All right, so we kick off very first thing. We got a needle drop. It's like a big, I guess I'd call it like a frat party, but I think it's technically a football player party type of thing. Uh, we get a needle drop here, a Fat Boy Slim's Wonderful Night. I didn't really make a strong lyrical connection other than it's a wonderful night. And it's, you know, it's about the party atmosphere. I think you were a little bit more in tune to this being just a party anthem back in the 2005s. I was, I was not a partier, so I have no idea. But the thing that I really wanted to talk about first is I truly love the way that we reveal that it's Lois in this drinking competition. It is absolutely reminds me of, and I have to believe it's fully an homage to how Marion Ravenwood is introduced in the original Raiders of the Lost or Indiana Jones movie, The Raiders of the Lost Ark, particularly how the one football player sort of falls backwards out of frame. And that is how we get the reveal that it's Lois. I think that is extremely well done. Yes, absolutely. And while I very much 
appreciate the thought that I may have had a social life in the early 2000s. I did not. <laughs> uh, this is an academic knowledge of Fatboy Slim being part of the cultural zeitgeist in its heyday. I think it definitely fits the, a lot of the themes. Like, um, I think some of the lyrics there were, don't look at the clock, all your problems forgot. I think that kind of fits with what's going on here. Got to shout out Lois and her gym jams, though. <laughs> no one else is in pajamas. That's the thing. If this was like a themed pajama party, sure. Lois apparently walked to this party from her dorm in her jams and was betting big dollars on some drinking to then go back home. Now, I've thought about this a little bit since the last time we recorded I believe at this part of the season, Lois more or less is on the outs from her dad, at least. So maybe this was a, she heard about a party. She decided to barge in, try to make some extra money. Lois is very enterprising and she definitely doesn't care about anybody. So barging in your gym jams, that's also a weapon. Lois is very tactical. I'm going to show up in my jams. They're going to underestimate me and I'm going to drink them under the table. So Props to Lois, but also none of that was stated on screen. We're all guessing. Yeah. Who said, hey, costume, put this gal in some jams. It'll be great. Yeah. I remember who approved that. I did ask last time. I'll ask again here. Again, I'm not a girl, was not a girl in college, never went to a college party as a guy or girl. Was that a thing in 2005? Did did people just go to parties in their, like I said, in their gym jams? Because it wasn't like everyone else was. It wasn't like it was a pajama party. It was just Lois in her pajamas. I don't understand the betting process for the drinking game because at one point we see there's a, another young lady in the audience and she takes the money and she throws it down into the middle of the table. I can only assume that she's betting on either Lois to win or to lose, but no one was taking the money. So I don't know what the odds were. I don't understand. Does Lois get all of that money? If she wins, because if so, then why would anyone bet? Because in the, I, I don't understand how that was supposed to be gambling. Like, I, so I need someone to explain to me what the payout process would be based <laughs> on the winning. If people are just throwing money into the middle of the table, who knows who gets what at the end? Yeah. So if there's any college drinking party bookies out there, please write to the show. Yes. Smallville uh, fancast at gmail.com. I as well went to no parties. <laughs> Of, of any sort during that era of time. I don't go to parties now either. Yeah. So I have no idea. Um, I was a perennial old man. I, 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 I just had no friends. I was very lonely. <laughs> um, I oh. think it was one of those, like, we were trying to set the scene, but they didn't really think it through mm-hmm. or else they didn't care. Like there was yeah. so much going on in this episode. I think it was just, we need to set up drinking, gambling. Let's go and the plot the plot fell through the cracks so this is where we get our introduction to the character of jeff johns and he actually comes across as sort of like a good guy here he seems to be trying to keep his uh, fellow football players from over drinking i think that's probably too late Uh, you know he wants to shut the party down he says he has to get up really early to to deal with the recruit the next day and he just comes across as like a more straight lace. He's responsible. Responsible. That's what I'm looking for. A little bit more responsible uh, and also trying to protect maybe his, his fellow football players. And we learned that very quickly. That's not what's going on. So it's kind of an, kind of an interesting introduction that they do portray him as responsible and kind of like 
seems to be good-hearted. Uh, but his football player buddies, particularly David Coop- Cooperson, uh, is not having it. He wants to finish the drinking competition. Maddie, believe me, this isn't Susie Sorority you're playing with. I've drunk vodka with Russian generals, black and tans with British battalion chiefs. Even stop talking, start drinking. Ends up losing to Lois, and then of course we see her leaving, and then he comes back out, and he comes on a little bit too strong to the point that Lois feels the need to physically you know, like push him away, kicking him in the stomach. He falls to the ground. He's still conscious and talking and everything. And she walks away, problem solved until the very next morning, very early, someone pounds on her door. She's awoken. It's the, it's the Metropolis police. I'm pretty sure it's not the campus police. I think I'm pretty sure it's Metropolis police. Not only do they arrest her for paralyzing him, they tell her specifically that we're here to arrest you because you paralyzed (laughs) this guy. I don't remember when we talk about it, but like who was there to point out that she, because it didn't look like there was any witnesses. Yeah. So who said, yes, it was Lois that did that. There's some, I think we talked about this all last time. There are some really good moments in this episode, but there are some really weird and just frankly missing connective tissue between some of these scenes. If you think about it too hard, they do not make sense together, but the, either the emotion of the scene or just the fun of it works well enough that I don't worry about it too much. But in a show like this, where we watch the episode multiple times, looking for things to talk about, it becomes very clear that some of these scenes don't actually make sense in connection to each other. Yeah. Talk about that classic Smallville leap of logic. This was the Metropolis leap of logic (laughs) for um, who was leaving a party and who's now getting arrested. Uh, Going back a second, I like how Jeff is set up here. We see later in this episode, Jeff has a lot of pressure on him. There is an argument that um, he's not really fully to blame for some of the crimes he commits. I think that's the story they're trying to sell here. Some of the, the questions of his moral choices, it doesn't really come across too well. But I think setting him up as the good, responsible football hero is crucial to those later, oh, my God, I'm going through so much. I had to do it moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're, I think very clearly they're trying to set up a parallel between Jeff and Clark. They 100%. are the same type of situation. How do they handle what would happen to them differently? Like, you know, right. what choices would Clark make versus the choices that Jeff makes? Right. But the, the cops, just that statement, he's paralyzed, you're under arrest. So bad, so poorly delivered and seemingly out of nowhere. Like you said, We didn't see any witnesses to this altercation between Coop and Lois. Did Jeff try to set this up? Did Jeff set the cops on her trail? So many disconnected plot points here. Also, I think there is a huge fast forward button on this legal process, like going right to he's paralyzed, you're under arrest. And then within a day or two, she's fine. Like, this whole thing is just speed of plot janky. Yeah. And again, we, we talked about before, we're going to hit it a couple of times. This is one of those examples. I'm going to try, try not to hit all of them again because there are plenty. But, and I'll, we're jumping ahead, but in the next scene, we're going to find out Lois posted bail, came to Smallville only to turn around and go back up to Metropolis. <laughs> but she was arrested on what was likely a weekend. The next day was a school day because she goes to the high school where Clark and Chloe are at. So this has to be a school day. She wouldn't be able to get out of jail on bail until she's arraigned. So she would have to go before a judge 
before that happens. That's not going to happen before nine o'clock, period. There's no way that's happening before nine o'clock. So the, the timing doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So that's just the sort of things that we're talking about. Did that, does that really matter? No. Does it really matter that Lois went to small just to turn and go back? No. But if you start to think about it, it's like, oh, that, yeah, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. And as I asked in the last recording of this episode, I, I have yet to figure out where Metropolis is in the Smallville world. You so graciously explained to me last time that instead of being a New York-style city on the East Coast, Metropolis is now a big city in Kansas. Yeah, it's basically it, Kansas City. I think technically isn't Kansas City in Missouri. Like that's like that weird thing. It's like right across the two Kansas cities. Maybe there is. I don't, I'm dumb, but yeah, but it's a giant metropolis. We're not geography experts, folks. We're barely podcast professionals. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, all right. Let's jump into the first act. If you don't mind, will you read that summary, please? Jonathan is helping Clark pack for his weekend recruitment trip to met you. He's worried, but also excited and proud. Current Met You superstar and former Smallville high athlete Jeff Johns surprises Clark. He's there to give him a ride up. Lois is with Chloe at school. They're going to ride back up to Met You together. Clark was supposed to ride with Chloe, but is now riding with Jeff. Chloe offers some subtle shade to Clark using his gifts on the football field. Lex renews his offer to give Jason a job, but needs an answer now. Lois and Chloe start to investigate Coop's condition. Yeah, so there's a lot going on in the first act. I think, again, I mentioned this. I don't know if this was this episode or another recent one, but it's, you know, again, thinking about these episodes, it comes very clear that the cold open is usually small and contained. um, And then the first act is where we try to get all the various plot threads for the entire rest of the episode. So it's generally pretty stuff. So that's what happens here. So we start off with the the scene at the farm. This is what we did for our cold opens. We've already done the dialogue here. Essentially, Clark and Jonathan are packing for Clark's trip up to Met You. He's been offered a football scholarship. And this whole episode is about him going up there as a potential recruit and them trying to woo him and then him seeing what sort of pressures he might be under. So again, we did the dialogue. But is there anything about that opening scene with Jonathan Clark you want to call out specifically? The only thing I want to call out Other than the standard, Jonathan is an amazing father, consistently, time and time again. And the chemistry between these two performers is spot on excellent. I just think it's so dumb that Clark is sticking to his defense, his rationalization, that he's not using his powers on the field. He is. Yes, yes. 100% he is. The, The Crows... This is an undefeated season. Every single game arguably is being won because of him. He's, he's been throwing footballs on the farm. Sure. He's never played the actual game. He had to learn the tactics. He had to learn the plays. Probably super speed and super memory got him there. He had to perfectly not show his superpowers, but also use his superpowers to throw that perfect pitch, catch, perfect toss, I am. I don't know why I'm talking about football right now. I think he, throw is the terminology. Pass or throw are the words. There you go. Yeah. Thank you. It was much better the first time, folks. If you can go back to the original recording, it sounded. I sounded so much more professional. But you can't. Um, we did record it. Well, actually, Caleb did record his side. I and just then I delete, but I deleted it. Well, you should have. There's no. Yeah. 
Anyway. So, but we've litigated this yes. multiple times. I completely agree with you. I'm definitely on your side. But one of my guests, I think it was Case, brought up that even if Clark is able to suppress his super abilities and not throw the ball any further than anyone else who was Clark size could throw it. He doesn't run any faster than someone Clark size could run. He's never going to get injured. He's never going to get tired. So every other person on that field, particularly at the high school level, you have a lot of people who play both sides of the ball. They, you know, they don't have a lot of backup. So pretty much if you're on the field, you're going to be on the field almost the entire game. Everyone else in that field is going to be exhausted by the fourth quarter. And Clark is just as fresh as he was the moment he stepped out there. So, yes, even if he's not using a super speed or super strength, his resistance, his conditioning, his invulnerability absolutely still gives them an unfair advantage to every other player on the field. Right. Uh, But then we get Jeff showing up. I love that you pointed out this. Uh, comparison to me because I didn't pick it up the first few times I watched this episode. I was just kind of in the moment of the show, but you very smartly pointed out this is Clark. This is a different version of Clark. We set up these parallel character arcs, started in Smallville, played football, have powers, don't show the powers, but use the powers to get ahead. And that's where the paths diverge. Jeff used his powers, which we'll learn later. Sorry, spoiler. Jeff used his powers to get ahead and is maintaining his level of expert proficiency. Clark is struggling. Can he not do that? So seeing Jeff come in as a small town hero, seeing both Clark and Jonathan kind of hero worship, they're in awe of of him being there. Clark says, oh, big fancy star in my barn. Like, this is a big deal. So this setup of Jeff being praised and successful is then what shows us later uh, the challenge that Clark faces in his ultimate choice. And then it's also important, I think, to add to that, that um, he it later, Jeff even says that I didn't use these powers in high school. Now, that could have been a lie. We don't know. But that basically, again, is that comparison to Clark is he didn't use them in high school. He was able to be successful with just his natural talents. But once he got to the college level, it changed and he felt he had to start using those again, he said, to keep his level of performance up to, to be the star that, that people expected him to be, which, again, is exactly what. Clark is about to have to ask himself, could he, under those same conditions, allow himself to lose a game that he knows he could win just by just a little, little flex of the power? You know, just, just one little throw that's probably better than anyone else. One little dodge of a somebody's about to tackle him so he keeps a play alive. That's the question Clark is going to have to ask himself. And Jonathan Smartly at the beginning of the episode says, it's a different situation. Not only would you be under more pressure to use them, you're also more likely to get caught if you do, because you're going to be under the microscope at a college level program than you were, you know, local Kansas high school. So I do think this is very smartly setting us up for what we, it's almost like a bait and switch in a way. Like I think going to this episode, we still expect Clark to probably go to you in, in like, you know, college year sort of situation. And so I think that is kind of interesting the way they sort of subvert the expectations they set up smartly, but it is very clearly a comparison that we're supposed to be drawing. Again, this makes no sense. So apparently this guy drove down early enough to pick up Clark prior to going to school because then they go to school, but then they drive up to met you. So Clark apparently didn't go to school. I don't think Jeff spent the entire school day at 
Smallville. I'm sure he was there for like an hour, but then why did they go there at all other than for Jeff to like, you know, sign some autographs? Why was Chloe there? Why does Lois show up? It makes no sense. Uh, but anyway, we get this scene of Lois still under the hangover. So it's still the same next morning. Again, she drove to Metropolis or to Smallville just to turn around and go back. But you you called out last time, there's some sort of heavy handed, like alcohol awareness, drinking sort of like, uh, you know, pressure preaching us here about how alcohol is bad. Jonathan tells Clark not to drink, even though it doesn't affect him, just he's underage. Lois swears she'll never drink again because of what happened. Um, it's just kind of interesting that I think that they're really, really hammering home, like almost like an anti-drinking message here. Yeah, the the CW compliance board somewhere was like, okay, you can start the episode with a drinking game with college kids, but to offset it, you have to have everybody really say that drinking is bad for the entire episode. Mm -hmm. And in this scene, uh, Lois is there for whatever reason. And she's like, oh, I swear to God, I didn't do it. And Clark, Clark, Clark comes out swinging with, well, you were drinking, right? Yep. Yep. Like, dude, I know you and Lois have this weird, like back and forth antagonistic dynamic, but that's like just below the belt. That's like saying, okay, you were so drunk, you actually did paralyze a guy by kicking him. Dude, that's just mean. Yeah. She's hungover. She, <laughs> that that three-hour drive to Smallville for a five-minute conversation really taxed her mental <laughs> capacity, and yeah. now you're just being a jerk. Yeah, and I think you pointed out, I think you're completely right. The only reason this scene is here is so that we can clearly see Lois in those sunglasses that she's yep. wearing because of the hangover, because that becomes a plot detail later. We need to be able to recognize that those are Lois's sunglasses, or really Chloe does, but we see Chloe with her. Because otherwise, it, Chloe should have been like, yeah, I have to stop and pick up Lois from the courthouse or from the jail or whatever the case may be, because she's being arraigned today, not she somehow managed to get to Smallville by 7 a.m. That makes absolutely no sense. That would have been so much better. It, yeah. the, and that would have gone right into, hey, Chloe, says Clark, I have to ride with Jeff. Do you mind? No, I don't care. I have to go get Lois from the courthouse. Yep. There you go, writers. We fixed it for you. Yep. Only like 17 years late, but you're welcome, America. <laughs> uh, so we cut over to the mansion where Jason stops by. Lex assumes he's there to take the job, but... Jason's not really interested in working with someone whose mission it is, is to break him and Lana up. Uh, Lex deflects this and says that his primary worry is actually Jason's mother. So then Lex calls out that Jason and his mother used to travel to the far reaches of the globe, that they were always, you know, interested in the countess and sort of subtle hints that they were after the stones of power and, you know, you were researching this, this figure who just happened to, you know, possess your girlfriend like last week or whatever. And it's not that, you know, it's, it's, and that, that, the fact that that happened not long after you came into her life bothers me. Uh, so there's a little bit of back and forth and it ends with like saying, but I need an answer right now on whether you're going to take the job, but we don't actually get the answer because we cut away. Uh, so anything in this scene you want to talk about? Well, just got a shout out. This is our original multiverse of madness uh, on the CW. Yes. We had a lot of other crossovers in our youth, but on the CW, this is the start uh, of the CW multiverse right here. I think we could have argued if, if Supernatural had gone a different way, that maybe this was the same character. Mm -hmm. You know, he 
he saw this this possession he 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 knows these crazy things are happening in smallville and then he goes off on his own to 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 right the wrongs of of this supernatural world but of course we don't get that we get jensen ackles being awesome in supernatural the first five seasons of supernatural was amazing tv i've watched through season 12 and it gets wild i wasn't able to keep up with it there's some ups and downs but those first five seasons of supernatural are pretty much not perfect but they're darn good but still 15 seasons of a show that starts with the premise of a bunch of randos fighting off supernatural creatures that's solid yeah that's real solid that's good work. i I, I I think it's fair to say that the show was carried on the very broad shoulders of its two main stars. Yep. Probably not so much the plot. Yeah. Um, but the only thing about this scene that really kind of bugs me is just how petty the interaction between them is. Uh, Jason's line is like, I don't want to work for someone who wants to break up me and my girlfriend. Yeah. It's just such an immature motivation. And I get it. This is the soap opera side of the CW, uh, uh, this is the very early version, the earliest version of that CW soap opera superhero jive. So I get it. It just, it seems. The language annoying. seems immature for Jason. Very, yeah. Yeah. He, he's, he's, he's cool. Like he's a cool dude. And multiple times in this episode, it's like, oh, don't break us up. Uh, mm-hmm. Come on, guys. Let's go to Tashi Station, pick up some power girders. <laughs> Yeah, I think I mentioned here that I don't know if it was a fan theory or if it was actually on the books, but I read something somewhere one time about a p- potential Smallville supernatural crossover. And I got to say, that would be amazing. Uh, you know, the the boys come to town because they think they have like a supernatural monster, but it turns out it's Clark doing his Clark thing. That could have been really, really cool. So again, I don't remember if that was like, like a fan thing. Like, oh, I wish it would happen or if there was actually talk about it. But I really wish we would have gotten that. Same thing with the X-Files. I, w- I would have loved like a, like a three-episode arc, which is Supernatural, X-Files, and Smallville all together. Because oh, we're like Mulder and Scully come in and go, wait, you're not actually FBI agents. And so you got that whole level going. Could be amazing. Would have been really good. Um, the only other thing about this scene, it seems to me like Jason is really kind of playing it straight here. He's trying to be the good guy. Uh, We know eventually later in the season, he gets that massive bad guy heel turn. So I'm curious, was this written when the writer still thought they had Jensen for longer and he was still on the good path? Or was this when they were already thinking, okay, we have to get rid of him. So they're trying to layer in these, these potential double crosses and triple crosses it's very confusing but we don't know that at the time we only know that in retrospect because we know what happens in the future it's a mess but that's just where i'm thinking as i'm watching this scene yeah it's hard to say i don't i'm sure someone out here out there does know i don't know exactly when the writing started to reflect the fact that they knew he would be leaving and when it when they thought they had him longer but this to me plays as a sort of hard to get like i think jason wants to work for lex for the nefarious purposes of him and his mother still working together, but he can't be eager because then it will be suspicious about playing quote unquote hard to get and making Lex push it and force him into this sort of like quote unquote snap decision. He makes it seem like he's reluctantly taking the job rather yeah. than this is actually what he wanted all along. Spycraft, baby. Spycraft. Yeah. We get a really weird scene where Chloe and Lois are at the hospital visiting Coop and the lighting here makes it seem like it's, 
midnight, but apparently it's like 11 a.m. I don't know. I mean, I guess if you're paralyzed, maybe they keep the lights down low because you can't blink. And I don't, I don't know how that works. But Lois comes across as very sincere that she's really sorry this happened to him, but she's not to blame. And then again, I'm still in your thunder here. You brought up, it was kind of a bit of a leap of logic for Lois to think that maybe we should check the cards, that maybe someone who sent a card might be someone who actually knows what happened. And they happened to find the one that was sent from all the Alpha 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 girls or the Tri-Alphas, you know, and it was signed by his girlfriend, Monique, which is how we get this connective tissue to a scene that's really fun later, but makes no damn sense now. Yeah, this whole thing, this whole this whole last scene in Act 1 doesn't really make sense beyond the weird lighting. So Lois was in Smallville for no reason. They drove back to Metropolis, and the first thing they do is go to a hospital and break in because Chloe even says, we have to leave before anyone sees you. Mm-hmm. Lois is still on the hook legally for what happened to this kid. And they sneak into his hospital room so she can apologize. That doesn't look good to the courts. I'm no. sure. Yeah. If she but had anyway, gotten caught, that'd be bad. That'd be super bad. I expect Chloe to be a better investigator. She's smart. But then we get the scene or the end of the scene with the cards. What stuck out to me here is this sorority has custom printed sympathy cards. I don't know if that's a thing or not. I was never in a sorority or a fraternity. If you were listeners, please let us know if you had a stationary department. But what what strikes me as so funny is that this is uh, like special pre-printed from the sorority, from the entire sorority, but only Coop's girlfriend signed it. Yeah, like this I scene could, is only here so that Lois can be at the sorority house later. Oh, 100%. That's the only reason why we have this scene. Like, it doesn't make any sense otherwise. We've all worked in offices. We've all signed that card where it's blank on the insider. There's a little tiny message and there's like a thousand different signatures scribbled in there. Yep. That would have made more sense. And then Lois or Chloe could have spotted out, oh, here's the one with the hearts and the X's. Mm-hmm. I bet that's important. But no, it's only Monique. Yeah. Okay, whatever. Whatever. So let's jump into the second act here. Clark arrives at Met You in style, and they go all out to encourage him that Met You is the place for him to come to college. This includes a private party at a sorority where they are more than eager to help Clark decide. Before things get too steamy, Clark catches Lois snooping around, and later we learn exactly what happened to Coop and by whom, and then it gets worse. So we open up on Jeff and Clark driving up. Uh, There's a song playing. The internet tells me that this is All Behind by Anthony Michelangelo or Michangelo, but I cannot confirm the song actually exists or any lyrics. Yeah, we tried to find this song. I found a video for the music, but it looked to me like it was a video capture of a video game. So I'm almost wondering if this was like some sort of mashup of songs in one of those early 2000s trend of music-based video games, because the music to me also sounds a lot like Linkin Park. Mm. And it's a great vibe. It's two high school, college kids in a fancy car, three hours all by themselves, cracking lots of jokes probably. So it's got that vibe of the boys are out doing some stuff. So it's still good, but who knows what they're saying. Right. Uh, But very importantly, this scene shows us that Jeff 
again, sets up there's pressure to win at this level, that you get a lot of things. Uh, he mentions that basically he's loaned this car out by one of the alumni and that as a player, Clark would have access to these types of gifts as well. We get a little bit of nod to Tripstar, which is a like a non-TM version of OnStar, and this will become a plot point later. But again, the whole point here is that we see that Jeff is already talking about how there's pressure to win at this level. Clark, college football is big business. I mean, you get a lot, but they expect a lot in return. You have to be better than good. You have to be a hero out there. Uh, They go to the stadium where we have cheerleaders chanting his name. We have a marching band. We have his name being called over the loudspeaker PA system. Like, now, 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 playing, playing, quarterback, quarterback, back, Clark, Clark, Kent. There's the coach there, a bunch of football players are all clapping. He gets a jersey. There's a whole bunch of alumni back there, including the kind of sleazy car dealership person who once again tells a lot, you need anything, you let me know. And we, we made a big point of it last time. Again, clearly I was never recruited for anything <laughs> at this level, but we question, is this in any way re- realistic? Is this the sort of thing that a football program would do for a recruit? Anybody out there who knows either you yourself were an athlete that were recruited, or maybe you know someone, you're related to someone, you're married to someone, is this realistic or not? Because it seems like a lot but I don't really know. I mean, again, like some of these major schools like University of Florida, you know, they go to the national championship, Alabama, that type of thing. It wouldn't surprise me if it was similar to this, but it, even in Smallville, it seems sort of like, really? Yeah, I could easily see, let me give you a private tour. Let me show you the best dorms. Let me show you the perks. Let's take you out to a really nice dinner. Oh, one of our alumni sponsors owns a clothing store. Here's a nice suit. Like I could see them kind of laying it on thick, but not this over the top. Let's storm into the stadium. Here's a party that feels a little weird and different to me. Yeah. Um, But it's very important here that we see this setup about how important college ball is. I think there might be a little bit of a commentary here about the business of college sports. We know that's a very real world problem. Uh, But the setup here is that there is so much attention and pressure to succeed. This is fortifying and strengthening that foundation that we will later see when Jeff is rationalizing his decisions. I had to do this because of this pressure that's on me from the eyes of everybody, from the alumni, from the sleazy car dealer guys who want me to succeed we see some lines in here. You have to be the hero. I know you'll make the right decision. And that's Jeff talking to Clark saying, I know you will decide to play for us and help us win. Mm -hmm. Jeff doesn't know that Clark has powers. We know that Clark does. And this is that, that mirror of saying, we, we know you'll make the decision to use your powers to succeed in this high pressure situation. Jeff doesn't know he's saying that that's what we are analyzing. Um, But this is a very kind of big, intense backing up Jonathan. Look how many eyes are on you to succeed. Yes, I definitely agree. So Clark is almost like he's overwhelmed by all this attention. Mm -hmm. And then Jeff is like, you haven't seen anything yet. And then we cut to a very unfortunate 
scene. Oh, uh, it's funny, but oh. it, it's, yeah, it makes me, again, my, I'm sure when I was 24 watching this or whatever, I was like all into it. But now looking back, I'm just like, I don't need this. But basically he gets taken to a sorority, the Tri-Alphas. And the girls are very willing to put their bodies on the line to convince Clark to, to come to play football there. Two girls in particular take him up to what happens to be Coop's girlfriend's room. She's out visiting Coop at the moment. Um, but they're basically ready to have a three-way with Clark. And he is just, his all shucks, I can't touch a boob sort of attitude. <laughs> uh, it's very funny. It's very well acted from Tom's point of view. Um, I mean, it's just, but it's, it's, it's kind of uncomfortable to watch at this point in my life. But I do like the way Tom plays it, but I just think it's unfortunate. I'll give the actresses all the credit. They definitely do what they were supposed to do. I just could have done without it here other than the physical comedy aspect of it. Yeah, this is absolutely a physical comedy scene here that Tom does very well. The way he is trying to deflect, oh, let me look out the window. What a great view. Like he is doing everything but super speeding away to not be involved. Mm -hmm. I think it's hilarious that Jeff was like, hey, see you tomorrow morning, sport. <laughs> yeah. Don't do anything I wouldn't do. Like, man, I, I know you're coming from the same small town, but come on. <laughs> and I also have to point out in your notes for this show, this is an exact quote, audience. Clark is his typical, ah, shucks, I can't have a three-way with you girls self here. Do you think he's been in this situation before, Michael? Because that's kind of what you're implying. Well, so like two episodes back is when Clark and Alicia get married. And we have some extremely steamy, sexy scenes. But this is Clark on Red K. As soon as he comes off the Red K, he's like, I can't do this. And he has to get away. So it's just kind of the juxtaposition of Clark all but ready to seal the deal with Alicia versus like he won't even kiss these girls. I mean, they are throwing themselves at him and he won't even do that. It's just sort of that, you know, again, that all shuck sort of thing, yeah. because I'm not a man of steel. I'm, I was, I've never been in the position where two <laughs> girls are throwing themselves at me. Probably wouldn't have said no if they had. Uh, well, I, I think the truth, justice, and apple pie doesn't leave any room for uh, hanky-panky. Yep. Can't touch boobs. Nope. So, again, I will point out, we've, we've already established multiple times that Clark has to always let himself be like, manhandled in a way that like he has to like not break someone's hand when he shakes it. If he gets bumped into, he has to fall backwards. So they throw him down on the bed. He technically allowed that to happen. Yes. But fortunately for everyone involved at the moment, Lois is in the closet hiding. They all hear a sound and Clark uses his x-ray vision and sees someone in there snooping. So he's like, let me check it out. He opens the door, sees Lois in there. She gives the universal sign for, Psh, you know, don't say anything. And Clark immediately and I, there's just something about this I love. He's about to have an amazing experience for a young man, <laughs> but he immediately is like, no, Lois is more important. I'm going to, whatever she needs, to, I'm going to do to the point that he basically kicks the girls out of the room. I'm making an excuse that he wants something to drink and then something to eat. And so they both leave. And then we get Lois. Again, when they set up earlier, this is Coop's girlfriend's room. He, she has Coop's diary or girlfriend's diary and starts reading from it. And there's a passage in there that says, Coop's girlfriend wasn't here, so I thought I'd take a look around. Real page turnip. Gain two pounds. From now on, it's no carbs. 
She's not Hemingway, but still. I, I don't have time for this. Here it is. Coop is meeting with a newspaper reporter and being super secretive. It has something to do with the football team, but I don't know what it is. Which is why they think there might be something more going on. I do like that Clark instantly supports Lois. Like we've established in season four, they have an excellent dynamic, great interplay and exchanges between the two of them. It's antagonistic, but not offensively so. They're on each other's side, but they're just not like we grew up together friends. But in the moment, he sees her potentially in danger. But let's, of course, call out he had no idea she was there. He had no idea she was coming there. He knows she's nosy. He's probably guessing she's snooping around. And in that moment, he says, I need to help her. That's more important. And that's just great. I mean, regardless of the future of these two characters that we know, but these two characters don't, just seeing these two friends who arguably in the show's timeline only met a few months ago, maybe. Yeah. yeah. They're are the buddies. beginning of the school year and they're still in the school year. Yeah. They're buddies and he supports his buddy. That's great. Good mm-hmm. on you, Clark. Yep. But uh, then nope. the girls come back. Yeah. And I love, love, love Tom's uh, delivery. He's like, Oh, hi. <laughs> it's so awkward. It's so, how am I going to get out of this situation? This is a big Hulkin dude. He, he's massive guy. He looks great, handsome as hell. And he just gets that aw shucks. Hi. It's such a good delivery of a throwaway line. Thank you, Tom. Very, very well done. Uh, then we get a truly disturbing scene. And I, you know, I know we called this out last time, but I think that the director here really brought some, some direction of, kind of maybe elevated above some of the other in this show. This scene plays like a straight horror movie. So you're in this poorly lit or low lit hospital room. We start to see Coop is beginning to come out of whatever this paralyzation was. He's starting to sort of be able to wiggle his fingers and we see a little bit more movement in the face, but it's, it's subtle. Mm-hmm. And we see Jeff kind of looking over him. And this is where we learn that Jeff did this to him. Mm-hmm. And he comes up and he like, he touches him again. We see a little bit of red glow on his hand where he touches Coop's shoulder and it sort of like re-energizes this per- paralysis effect. And then he picks up a pillow and he suffocates his friend. And the look of fear on the actor who plays Coop here, he, he can't move. He's paralyzed. But you still can sense that fear, that terror that he has knowing this is about to happen. You know, and then, you know, Jeff's like upset, like he doesn't seem like he wants to do this. He feels like he's being kind of being forced into it. But this scene could have been in like a different show and a movie quality level acting on both parts. It's it's so well done. It almost sticks out unfairly like a sore thumb because it's like, wow, it you know, the, the, the writings over the, uh, on the nose. It's like so. Uh, but the acting and the directing is top notch. Yeah, we get that very classic trope finger twitch, meaning he's coming out of his coma or his paralysis. The actor that played Coop really, really nailed nonverbal communication in this scene. Huge props to this performer. Uh, Jeff really dumps exposition 
in his kind of confession, his deathbed confession here, because he knows Coop isn't going to be around. My only complaints of this scene are that some of his pauses are just a, a couple beats too long. But excellent scene across the board. Plot-wise, I'm a little bit confused, but this whole plot doesn't make a lot of sense in a linear timeline. We know that Lois kicked Coop, and then somehow Coop ends up in the hospital paralyzed. So I think we are supposed to believe that Jeff found Coop after Lois knocked him down and paralyzed him then. Yep. And then maybe that's the answer to that question you posed. He's the one that then calls the police saying, I saw Lois kick this guy and look at him now. That's the only thing that makes sense. But I think that's a big stretch of logic here. It it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It it doesn't because ultimately Jeff feels the need to kill Coop, which is it's terrible. But that's that's what he feels he needs to do. But then why did he paralyze him one time and then come back to finish the job was he interrupted was he going to do it then but he couldn't like i feel like maybe there's a scene that, that was cut you know for time where he does that and then someone's like there so he has to like he can't can't go all the way he's paralyzed but he can't actually kill him but then that also reveals that jeff is the one that did it maybe too early for what the episode's trying to do the bait and switch because we're you know we're into this into the second act before we get this reveal but the again the connective tissue doesn't make sense what was the plan why did it change? So it just seems like Jeff maybe thought, well, if I paralyze him, that'll be enough. And then later he realizes it's not enough, you know, because that happens sometimes. You make a poor decision and that leads you to feel like, oh, well, now I have to do an even worse decision because of what I've done now. But it just, I, I feel like I wanted a, for a show that does a lot of times like very on the nose dialogue. I feel like there's some missing stuff here for me to fully get what happened. I completely agree. We're, we're just not seeing that thread. I think they were trying to focus on Jeff as a character and the pressure on him. So they opted for more of those scenes as opposed to that connective tissue of what led us to those moments. But I don't want to let this version of the recording go without you bringing up the point that you made last time about the fade to black, Mm -hmm. because that is an excellent, excellent point about the quality of this particular scene. Yeah, so this is a, an act break. At least that's what we, we're calling them on the show is, is when you go to commercial. I'm watching these on Hulu streaming, but they still include those breaks. So you can tell the difference between when a scene cuts to another scene and when it cuts to black for a few seconds before it goes to the next scene. And so Koopa's lying there. He can't really move. Jeff picks up the pillow and he goes to cover his face. And then the screen goes black as if we've cut into the act break. And then like a second later, we get the, the sound of like the heart monitor stopping. And it's like jarring because you think, oh, I mean, you know what's happening. But then to almost feel like you're safe in this space and then have that happen, it was just jarring, super, super effective, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of mirrors the feeling that Coop probably had because the world goes dark and then he suffocated. He's, he just can't do anything about it. Again, I feel like this is an elevated technique that I believe the director probably brought to the project that Janot Swarge, again, I'm sure I'm butchering that, but I was like, again, almost like out of a different show. It was so well done. Yeah, but that ends act two. Yep, let's jump into act three, please. Jeff tells Lois and Clark that Coop died and then tells Clark he should ditch Lois as a friend. 
Jason and Lana fight about Jason taking Lex's job. The next day, Lana confronts Lex about it, but Lex says when she's ready for the truth to let him know. At the memorial for Coop, Marcus comes by and Clark overhears that Jeff uses urine samples to pass drug tests and sees Jeff use his powers on Marcus. He goes to Chloe and Lois with this information. They split up. Lois talks to Marcus, but Jeff shows up and uses his powers to kidnap her. So we start off with Lois and Clark together. They're still investigating what's going on. And I guess they go to like the, I don't know if it's a stadium. I don't know if this is the the frat house. I don't exactly know where this is, but Jeff looks very upset. Obviously he's just killed his friend, but we don't, they don't know that. And this is where Lois finds out that Coop is now dead. And, you know, Lois, being Lois, she's willing to push it, even though Clark doesn't want to, but she, she brings up a good point. She's now on the hook for manslaughter. Like she Mm -hmm. paralyzed this guy. She didn't really, but you know, that's what the law says. She may have done that. She's going to have to defend herself. And now that he's died, her charges are going to be amended to show that she's on for manslaughter. And I just think that's, again, the episode doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's a powerful motivation for her to continue to be the Snoopy Lois that we've come kind of will come to love in the future. Yes. And I do think this is also an early example of Lois putting herself in the crosshairs of the villain. Obviously, she doesn't know that Jeff is the villain. This isn't like in later versions and other versions of the character where she's just assaulting someone from Metro Gang or Dark Side or whatever, knowing that even when they throw her off a building, Superman will be there. But I think it's, it's the beginning of that version of the character. She trusts Superman to save her so she can take more risks to do what she feels is right. Now, in this case, she's kind of selfishly defending herself, but I think the principle stands true. She's going to get there and do what's right to get the story, to find the answer. She is that person at, the, at her core, regardless of how we see it and when we see it. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that's that sort of investigative reporter, journalist, you know, um, Pulitzer winning journalist instincts coming up that, yes, this is going to make people uncomfortable, but we need to find the truth of what happened. It's very selfishly here because the truth will keep her from being in trouble. But uh, I agree. And I don't know, do you watch the Harley Quinn cartoon on HBO Max? Yes. There's a very good version of that scene where Lois is basically being held at ransom and she just has a, I don't give an F attitude because (laughs) she knows that Superman is going to show up. And I think in this version, he lets Robin take it because Harley Quinn's not up to Superman standards. And she's like, okay, fine. I'll let Robin save me. It's a (laughs) glorious scene. If you have not seen it, it's great. I do think it's interesting that in this scene with Jeff, we kind of almost see like, a golem moment, like a switch from Mm. I'm the good guy to, oh, I'm the sniveling evil person. Like, I think it's really in that scene where he's telling Clark to dump Lois as a friend, like the tone of his voice, his body posture, maybe even the way he's lit and shot seems like he's a drastically different tone in how he's Uh, delivering himself. But maybe that was just my interpretation of it. Well, I think this comes after Lois says, we, you know, we know that Coop was going to go to the newspaper about something to do with the football team. So he's probably now thinking, I may have to kill Lois too. You know, I think that might be some of that. He's like, you know, he's, he's already done this horrible thing and he's trying to deal with that guilt. And now 
it's escalated once again. Not only did he have to do that, he may have to do even worse. Uh, and I think that's probably justifies the way he's acting in that scene. But probably. But who's to say? Uh, so we cut back to Lana and Jason. Uh, she's upset that apparently Jason has said yes. We didn't see the answer, but it seems clear that he has said yes to Lex's offer. Jason's trying to play it off like it's 3D chess. Like, I'm going to be able to figure out what Lex is doing. He's going to think I'm, we're working together, but I'm actually working against him. Uh, and Lana's like, it's going to blow up in our faces. And I do really like the line where Jason says, trust me. How can I trust someone who's willing to lie for a living? And I do think this is a hint at Jason's true character because, yeah, that would be awful. It's something we've seen in media quite a lot. But, to, you know, if you think about it rationally, like if you're a counter spy or a double agent, you're going into a situation where you have to lie every single moment of the day just to keep up appearances in what might end up being a life or death situation. Someone who's willing to do that, there's a type of character and, you know, in Lana's point of view, this is someone I can't trust, but I just think there's a certain type of person that says, this is a good idea, or I can do this. And it would be, I would, I would have a heart attack. I would, I would die in a week. I have a heart attack anxiety if I had to try to do that. And I wish that is a character arc we could have seen. Mm-hmm. Like had this character of Jason stuck around, whether it was Jensen Ackles or not, seeing the story of someone try to keep up that level of deception and spycraft, but then cracking. That would have been a compelling character arc. But it, instead, you know, we've got this Jason character who's going off to do whatever he's going to do, so we don't get to see that. Right. That would have been cool, though. This is another scene I don't like because we get that very immature focus on breaking the two of them up. Like Jason says something like, this is how we break through or, or crack through to Lex. And Lana turns it around like, no, this is how they break us apart. Mm -hmm. It is such a small soap opera. So I get it. This is a soap opera. Right. That's what this is. It's such a small, immature, self-centered view. And I think like that being the tag that Lana gets angry about when to your excellent point, we could have seen this bigger, what is it like to lie and how do we trust each other and And how do we build a relationship when there's potential subterfuge going on? Like the two counterpoints are so awkward. I just, this scene is really sour for me. Yeah. It it just doesn't really work. And again, I, I get what they're trying to do with Lana. Like she's the person who wants this relationship and she doesn't want to risk it for this. But if you take a moment to think about the world they actually live in, Lana has been possessed by a witch. She was casting magical spells like a week ago. This isn't something that, like, she's unconscious, she doesn't remember. She knows that happened. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that happened. So if you have two billionaires who are playing these games, like, you know, Game of Thrones, Games of Houses type of thing, and they might know what the F's going on, I kind of think I'd be on Jason's side going, yeah, you figure out what's going on, because I don't want to get possessed by a witch again and start killing people. So it's not that he's trying to do this for some other reason. Like he's probably lying to her, but his reason to do that as far as she's aware is to protect her from this happening again. I kind of feel like she should be a little bit more like, yeah, maybe this is a good idea, but she wants to be direct. So we cut to where she's at the mansion. She's just confronting Lex, like what the hell's going on, dude? And And how many times has she said that? How many times has she stormed in? Who the hell do you think you are? 
Like that is her catchphrase. Yeah, everybody at the mansion. Like I, at some point, I want to do a supercut of every time Clark barges into the mansion and just throws an accusation: "Are you killing dogs? Are you the man with <laughs> on the grassy knoll?" Like every time he barges in, he's just straight off with something. But we get into good old fashioned walk and talk with Lana and Lex, and this is where Lex basically says, "You know, how much do you really know about Jason?" Lana, if you want me to be honest with you, I will, but you're not going to like it. You're going to feed me some story about Jason? I'm not interested. Look, I understand he means a lot to you. But when you're ready to talk, let me know. Uh, Which is obviously set for later. But the thing that I found most funny about this scene is at the end, we have a very clear 80-yard line where Lex says, you can let yourself out as he walks away. This is the one time where they need to explain that people come and go from the mansion whenever they want that like, like the audience would be confused. Like that makes no sense. Lex left her there. Why would he do that? Oh, okay. So we had a line where he says, you can let yourself No, We don't need that. line. Yeah. I, I, I could believe that the justification is that's how he is like ending the conversation, like get out of my house, but he's, framing it in a Lexi KG kind of way, but yeah, makes no sense when she just, I don't know how far it is from her place to the mansion, but again, she just trotted over, shoved her way past these useless security guards and was like, Hey, what's up? Are, are you trying to break up me and my boyfriend? <laughs> Cause that's, what's important. I also think it's, it's, it's a very typical Lex move, but it's an odd move here because like he's trying to work with Jason. But at the same time, he's also trying to make Lana doubt Jason. Like, I get how Lex is tactical and strategic and and multiple games playing multiple moves ahead of everybody else. But it seems like such a counterproductive. Why wouldn't he say, no, Jason's a cool dude. Don't worry about it. I love him. You, you calm down. He's right. cool. Like, why is he antagonizing her when he's also trying to convince Jason to be here to do work for him about Jason's mother. Right. Is he trying to say, well, I need them to separate so I can send Jason off on missions and not feel guilty about it. It's just weird. Yeah, it is a little bit weird because ultimately that's kind of what happens is because she goes to Lex. Lex has the, the opportunity to put that seed of doubt that pays off later when she does come to him and Lex says, I do want to know what you know. So if, Jason hadn't had that scene, then that wouldn't have happened. So is Lex playing 4D chess here? And this was his plan all along was to get Lex Lana to come confront him? Lex is playing this weird mix of chess and checkers and Monopoly. Backgammon, who the hell? No one knows how to play Backgammon. I think it's a, he, it's a lie. He, he's just playing Backgammon. We yeah. just don't know what Backgammon is, yeah. but this is Backgammon. Gotcha. Boom. That's it. Huge yeah. story broken right here. <laughs> Exclusive. Farm to Fable. So we get what I think is a pretty interesting scene, it's, it makes no damn sense, like m- most of them don't, but there's a couple elements here that I find very interesting. So we're at a, a memorial for Coop. It appears to be at the stadium, and the football players are there, the uh, cheerleaders are there, the students are all drinking beer, and Jeff gives Clark grief for not drinking. Now, th- again, we've this already been like a heavy-handed sort of drinking, like cautionary tale all, already. But Jeff says, says something about him not drinking. He then like downs a beer and then drinks another. 
we get another needle drop here, a Wild West show by Big and Rich. I didn't really see any lyrical connection, but I think you pointed out last time some potential possibilities. Yeah, I found a, a line that was, it's like a ghost town without you around. So maybe this is a little bit about that sorrow. A friend is gone, but we're still here together. Might be a bit of a stretch. I don't know the song very well, but I picked that out as I was scanning the lyrics. So once again, Jeff again lays out that plan here is a dream come true, but it is so much of a pressure cooker that all they want is a winner. You know, again, just once again, restating the thesis of this episode. That's when Marcus shows up, who seems very out of place. And uh, Jeff and Marcus go off together. I, I forget the order exactly, but at one point, Clark has a drink of beer. And that's what the part I wanted to get to is that Clark does fall to peer pressure already. He he's, was warned by his dad don't not to drink. He gave Lois grief for drinking. And Jeff is there talking about the pressure cooker and sort of, you know, he gives Clark grief for not drinking and Clark drinks. So we kind of see him fail yeah. right here. He is already not even on the field succumb to the peer pressure of wanting to fit in with all these other people. And I think that should be like a really big deal. And it wasn't, it was just kind of the end of this scene. Clark kind of like shrugs and looks concerned and takes a sip of beer. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this is him. Was he saying I'm making the sacrifice so that I can stay here and figure out what's going on with Jeff? Is he saying I want to be part of this so I can understand the mystery and solve the crime. But immediately after this, he's like, oh, Jeff's a bad guy. Let's go bust him up. Right. Like, that, it's not I'm, like, getting, I'm a little confused about where the, the drink, because in my notes, it comes after the Marcus Jeff scene. But I think maybe yes. it actually was before or was it after? I think it's after because okay. he's he's. Clark is criticizing Jeff for drinking too much. Oh, slow down. Haven't you had too many? That's when Jeff is saying like, there's so much pressure. We as the audience are knowing the story that he's under this pressure. So that's why he's using his powers from an in-world perspective. He's saying there's so much pressure on me. That's why I'm drinking this beer. Mm -hmm. We see the interaction between him and Marcus. Now, I still think this is out of a little bit confusing. It's a little bit out of place. It's very confusing, actually. Why is Jeff buying clean urine? We know from media and reality, it's so that he can pass a drug test. But mm. why? Is it that there is another layer of drug use or steroid use that was never brought up or was cut out of this episode? Or is it that he has to use this to pass a drug test that would otherwise reveal his meteor powers. Mm -hmm. It is never clarified. All this scene does is set, give us the reveal that Jeff it has the paralysis powers, which sets Clark on the path to stopping him. It also serves to set up Lois for making a whole bunch of pee jokes in the next scene. Mm -hmm. We could have done without any of those. Sorry, writers. None of those were good jokes. Yeah. But this whole interaction with Marcus, it's very out of place. It does tell us that Jeff is doing something he shouldn't because of the pressure. Mm -hmm. But we also just saw him literally say those words to Clark. Yeah. And after that, because then like Jeff zaps Marcus with a split second. So we see that he can control his powers a little bit, mm -hmm. not just knock you out, but like, zip, like taser him almost basically kicks him out of the room. 
And then he comes back to Clark and is like, oh, so much pressure. And that's when Clark takes a slug. Yeah. So see, with that interpretation, I actually, I want to believe that you're right and that Clark only drunk the beer there because he's starting to put the pieces together and we don't see it because it cuts to the next scene, but maybe he wanted to be able to stay in Jeff's good graces to like do more investigating. Because right. then that makes him taking the drink against his father's wishes to actually be sort of a sacrifice because he knows it doesn't affect him. Like we already got that established. He doesn't. So it's, it's just a way for him to stay ingratiated to Jeff and maybe do some more snooping. But if that's the case, then I want to see that because that makes that kind of a smart play versus him failing and falling under the influence of the peer pressure. Those are hugely different swings of what that means. And I want to think it's one, but I feel like it's the other. So I, I kind of wish the show would have made it clear. I like your interpretation that it is a failure to pill peer pressure because what we see later in the episode is that Clark finally wisens up and he listens to Jonathan mm-hmm. and if this is a moment where he fails and then in retrospect in self-analysis, he is saying, oh, I caved to what this random guy who I idolized did in a casual moment. What else might I do if I'm not paying attention and yep. to what heights might that escalate? I like that interpretation better because I think it says more about Clark's development and his character arc. Yeah, if, if, if that's the case, then he should have taken the drink before Jeff left with Marcus. Right. Yeah. And again, I'll give, again, Marcus, not a good person. You're selling urine to somebody, but definitely the memorial to the dead guy is not the place to come in. I know you need to get paid. I get it. Everybody's got to get paid, but no, that's not the right time to do that. I mean, that's blackmail 101. Sometimes you do have to exert a little bit of pressure, mm-hmm. but you could have done it better, friend. Yeah. Absolutely. So then we cut to Clark showing up to Chloe's, or I guess Lois's dorm room where Chloe's at filling out her financial aid paperwork. And he's like, I think Jeff's a bad guy. Okay. So the show has <laughs> happened many, many times where people come to Clark and say, hey, I think I know what's going on. And they don't actually know that Clark is Superman, but there is enough of Clark has saved the day that you can kind of count on him, certainly more than you can the police in Smallville, right? So it makes sense when Lana comes to Clark and says, hey, I think I know who's trying to kill me. Or Chloe comes to Clark and says, hey, I think I know who's trying to kill Lana. I don't get necessarily why Clark would immediately go to Lois and Chloe and say, I think I know who did it. I mean, I guess he knows Lois is investigating, but the psychology of that decision doesn't work as well for me in that order as it does the other way around because he doesn't know that Chloe knows his powers. Right. Once she knows and he knows that she knows, then it makes sense because they're on the same team. But this just felt like we've got to keep them involved for the next scene. The only justification I think is that he wants to tell Lois he has a lead to help her. But that is a big stretch. It's definitely a weird dynamic why wouldn't he just go handle it himself right because that's what he does he comes in and then he's like i'm gonna go handle it and then he leaves again long trip for a short conversation short conversation yeah yeah it's ridiculous we also do they get the point where lois gets to throw some shade and say i can't believe this you know scumbag would use his powers to win on the football field which obviously Mm -hmm. makes clark feel like crap right while she's eating her cup of noodles Mm -hmm. very college very college that probably the most realistic thing yeah um so they decide that they're going to basically team up. So Clark's going to go confront Jeff. Chloe and Lois are going to go find Marcus and see if Marcus can give them any more intel. They 
for some reason break up and Chloe decides to go into the dorm, even though she won't be able to get in because she doesn't have a key. Well, Lois goes to confront Marcus. We get a whole litany of pee jokes. But while she's confronting Marcus, Jeff shows up and he ends up using his power to like stun her, essentially kidnaps her in broad daylight in front of many, many witnesses. Luckily, though, he drops or she drops her sunglasses and drops off in the Teflon tailback, whatever license plate so that Chloe can see the glasses and see the truck and put it all together and know that she's been kidnapped. So we do have a nice throwback to the opening, not the very opening scene, but the early scene on the Kent farm. Jonathan was saying, oh, it's Jeff Johns, the Teflon tailback. tailback. So we get the payoff, the double payoff of that's how we see, we know it's his car. We saw Lois's sunglasses. But the worst part of this, beyond the stupid pee jokes, he just kidnaps her off the quad in daylight. And it's not like he played it off like, oh, honey, you're throwing up. Oh, you drank too much. You passed out. Oh, are you fainting? Let me get you to the doctor. Nope. He just stuns her, like drags her uncomfortably with no grace into his throws her into his giant SUV and they peel out. How did no one notice? It, that it's basically textbook kidnapping. Like there, there was no, well, maybe. Yeah, it was very clear to everyone that yes. that's what happened. And so. I'm pretty sure Marcus was right there. Like yeah, maybe well, he said- He tells Marcus, him to scram, but he couldn't have got far. No, he didn't get in a car. He was walking. He might've been on a bike. Okay. Yeah, I think and he was he, at a bike rack when, when Lois showed up. But yeah, but still, he wasn't far away. No, he wasn't far away. Come on. Yeah. All right. So in our fourth act, Clark and Chloe use Tripstar. Wait, wait, oh. wait, 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 wait. One more big scene here that I really, really hate in this act. <laughs> because after they drag him off, oh, two more scenes. There's two more scenes. This is where uh, Chloe comes back to Clark and is like, oh, Jeff kidnapped her. And then they and then he said, and then he says, oh, let's let's hack into the computers. And uh, that's where she's like, oh, you're going to go break into the safe? Yeah, I, and, I think I missed that. I think I have my notes out of order. So I had those in the fourth act. So, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. so we, we've got this scene where she tells Clark, like, we have to figure out what's going on. Let's, let's try to get some information about where Jeff's car is. But then we cut to what I think is the, the worst part of this entire episode. Jeff is dragging Lois into some underground water facility. Mm-hmm. She's still paralyzed. Yep. He lays her out on the floor. Uh-huh. I'm so sorry about this. I didn't want to do this. I'm just trying to cope with the pressure. Don't worry. It'll be quick. And then he cranks a big wheel and the room starts filling up with water. So he's going to drown her. Yes. Drowning is not quick, ladies and gentlemen. Especially when you're paralyzed and you have to know the water is slowly coming up around you. And yes, that is like one of the worst ways you could die. And we know that Lois is aware. She just can't move. Mm. We saw that with Coop. Her eyes are open in this scene. She is aware of her surroundings and what Jeff is doing to her. She just can't move. This is not a quick death. This is a torturous, evil death. Yes. But on top of how terrible that is, when Jeff leaves the room, he shuts the door. The door is like a barred jail cell door. It is not sealed. 
it is not watertight, there is no way this room would fill with water. Who, who built this set? Who built this set and said, it's fine. Don't worry yeah. about it. I no. do think he stepped down a little bit into that room, but I think your point still might hold that the water would still not get deep enough because I don't think he stepped down that far. It's just a weird, like if that's what you're going to go with then roll her on her face and then she'd be dead much quicker. Or just have it be a regular door. Yeah. Something a regular like, yeah. door. We've all seen the shape of water. Apparently that can hold for a very long time. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right. Ang- anger aside, I think that actually ends this act. Okay. So we find out that Clark and Chloe are going to use Tripstar to figure out where Jeff is. Once they do, Clark zooms over and confronts Jeff. He's immune, apparently, to Jeff's power. Jeff then admits, for some reason, that he killed Coop and tells Clark where Lois is, currently drowning. And Clark manages to save her before she drowns, question mark, because I don't think she, he actually did. Lois is a zombie for the rest of the show. <laughs> yeah. So we brought this up last time, but there's, again, there's probably some cutting room floor stuff, but apparently Clark did go to the dealership, break in, use his hands to rip open the safe to get the pin for Jeff's account so that they can call and pretend to be Jeff on the phone for Tripstar. And Clark, you know, was like, I, my, my screen's broken. I don't know where I am. Can you tell me where I'm at? At the same time that Chloe's on a computer with the map program up, but it almost seems like she is hacked into the Tripstar program. And it seems like it's sort of like a redundancy. Like, did they really need the pin to call or did they need the pin to use the computer? Why are they doing both? There's just, it doesn't quite make sense. It works. So we know where he is, but it, if you think about it too much, it just gives you brain hurt. Oh yeah. This doesn't make sense at all. We've got a laptop connected to an old style T9 texting flip phone. We all know that you could barely get on the internet with those phones. You could not hack something with a, a cell to laptop cord at any point in time with that type of phone and wireless service. If they got the pin, arguably they could use the pin to log in on the computer and access the services. Or if they had the pin, they could call in, hi, I'm Jeff. Here's my pin. Please help me. Mm-hmm but they're doing both simultaneously. The show is trying to say that they're all working in concert. It's two separate plans of attack, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It's completely redundant. It's stupid. Also stupid is when Clark is like, hi, I'm Jeff. Where am I? And then he hurries to hang up the phone to end the conversation before the customer service rep can ask any more questions. The recording of the customer service rep is you're on the corner of third and and albatross goodbye like there there is no can i help you do you need anything else mr johns nope here's where you are get off my line <laughs> zero stars terrible customer service that person's getting a write-up <laughs> I, I, yeah, I didn't, didn't even catch that but yeah so he's he's acting like he's trying to get off the phone quickly but they've already hung up on him so he doesn't yeah, need to do that it's dumb he then zooms off. Now, Chloe knows at this point that he can do that, but still, if not, it would be another example of him blatantly using his powers in front of her because, like, he's just gone. He teleported away. The door doesn't even open and close. Like, it's just so obvious at this point. I think. And she just shrugs. She's like, she just, oh, well. I mean, but I think part of that is her going, why didn't I realize this before? Because he's done this <laughs> multiple times, but it's so obvious now that that's what's going on, right? Yeah. For some reason, Jeff is still there at the scene of the crime. I don't know why he didn't pull off and is driving like mad to get somewhere else, but he's not. So Clark zooms up, but it doesn't appear that Jeff sees that. 
Then he like pulls them out of the car. I don't know if this is super strength or not. I certainly couldn't do that to someone that built like Jeff is, but maybe Tom Welling could, but he pulls him out, just rips him out through the open door, open window. And then Jeff tries to use his power on Clark, but Clark is resistant. And then he just confesses. Like the, the moment his power doesn't work, he says, oh, God, I killed Coop. I did all this stuff, but you don't understand the pressure. Um, he gets Jeff to tell him where Lois is. And then Clark casually walks down there and finds her and saves her after she's already underwater. Now, we talked about this last time. She's paralyzed, but apparently she's still breathing. So breathing is an involuntary process. She cannot control that she's breathing. Otherwise, she would be dead from lack of oxygen. Mm -hmm. So if she's underwater, she is still breathing because she cannot control that. So she would have breathed in water immediately. She would be dead. Yes, 100%. Lois is dead. Clark failed. Lois is dead. Sorry. This might be an irresponsible use of powers. He could have got there a little faster because once he was underground, he could be zooming. And it just shows him doing the jogging thing, like trying to find, like as soon as Jeff can't see, if he cares about that, he should be going super fast. Or he could have x-rayed vision and figure out right where she was so he wouldn't have to like look for her down there. No, terrible. We also see him using his heat vision to open the door, this gated door that would not seal the water in. It's weird to me that he uses his heat vision, which would arguably melt the lock or melt the door, but instead it explodes out in pyrotechnics. So like his heat vision has some weird kinetic side to it. It's like cy- Cyclops. There's like, it's, it's force blast, not yes. heat blast sort of thing. That, that yeah. must be it. Yeah. Um, and then he saves Lois, quote unquote. But the kicker to all of this, that's the last time we see Jeff. Yeah. What happened to Jeff? Did he go to jail? Did he tell the police? Is he still playing? There's, it never comes up. He's just, he confesses to the crimes and he's forgotten about. There's not even a throwaway. Oh, well, I'm so glad he turned himself in or, oh, I'm so glad he's getting the help he deserved. Yeah. Usually there's like a scene where somebody's holding the phone and they're like, just got off the phone. He's in jail. Like, no, they just forgot that he exists. Right. And the show is trying to say, or at least trying to tell us, to question the morality of his choice. Obviously, using his powers to cheat is wrong. And probably that's what Coop figured out. Again, we don't know this. The connective threads aren't there. He could have been telling him that he was on drugs or steroids because the pee thing. Maybe all Coop saw was Jeff was buying clean urine. So he thought he was doping. When really Jeff was buying the urine to cover up his meteor powers, maybe Coop didn't know. Maybe he did know he could paralyze people. Doesn't matter. We don't know. The show doesn't care, apparently. Right. But the show is telling us that, arguably, Jeff had the best intentions. He earned his way to, to Metropolis University on his own merit. But then the pressure that others put on him. The pressures of of the crowds in the stand, the alumni, the sleazy car dealership dude, the coach, that forced him to say, what can I do? Oh, I can use this special ability. So the show is trying to make us feel bad for him. Um, But because we don't get anything about what happened to him, it's a waste of effort. Mm -hmm. Like if they would have said, like if they would have told us that like someone's hanging up the phone. Oh, I just got off the phone with Jeff. He checked himself into that state mandated therapy program. Like, oh, he's trying to work through his trauma or 
I just got off the phone with my lawyer. Jeff's in jail. At least we know there's a consequence to his actions. But instead, nothing. Yeah, it's weird. In, in an episode that has a lot of failed connective tissues, that's the biggest offender, yeah. in my opinion. Like, we needed Definitely. something from yeah. And it, again, it could have been an 80-yard line. It didn't have to be much. But. All right, so let's go into the fifth act. Wrap things up, if you don't mind, will you read the summary? Back at the farm, we learn Lois is fine. But Clark, having seen firsthand what that pressure did to Jeff, makes him reconsider and has decided not to play football in college. Jonathan is proud of him, but Clark's worried about finances. Lex asks Lana an important question about her relationship with Jason. Lois needs a place to stay, and Chloe thinks Clark is destined for greater things. Yeah. So we, we get the phone call situation for Lois. We find out that she's been released from the hospital, so she's fine. So we are counting her as someone who's been in, uh, she's been in the hospital for our scoreboard. Um, you know, but Jonathan's like, I can't believe that Jeff did those things. Really? Like, you thought Clark was going to do those things. You should have been like, told you. But it, like the whole thing, like, I can't believe it. Then why were you preaching to Clark that that's exactly what would happen to him? You, this should be your moment to be like, see, huh, huh? Listen to your dad. Listen to your dad. It makes no sense. Yeah, we get the line that Jonathan says after Clark says, I'm not going to play football. He says, that's integrity beyond your years, son, which is such a great fatherly supportive line. But that translates to, I've been telling you this for four years, dumbass. Thank you for listening to me. Finally, yeah. Finally. Yeah. And it is interesting that Clark, the realization isn't about whether he could use his abilities on the field. He still thinks that was possible, but he realized he's going to have to rig all the tests. Because apparently there's something in the urine that will give it away. So he's going to have to fake all the urine tests. You can't ever give a blood sample. If I, don't, I don't know that you would need to, but, you know, again, potentially – if, if you were never injured, eventually the sports therapist is going to be like, this guy has to be on steroids because he never has a sore ankle or whatever the case, you know? So that's why he's decided not to play. But then we, we get the scene of Jonathan, like looking at the farm feed bill and Clark's like, you know, sort of worried. And we get this line from Jonathan, which is very powerful. Um, you know, I, I, last time I kind of equated to similar situation I kind of had where. Look at me, Clark. If you have your heart set on going to MedU or any other school, somehow, some way, your mother and I will make sure that you get to go. Is that understood? And I do love that. I hate the fact that the farm's in debt again because they go up and down. It's if they don't have a billionaire coming every season and save them, the farm would have went out of business twenty years ago. But I do like that. It's a very Americana sort of thing. My experience of we don't have a lot of money. But if you want to go to college, by God, we'll find a way. I do like that line as well. Very touching moment. Uh, very much showing how Jonathan and Martha are supporting Clark. The premise of Superman, especially this version of Superman, is that Clark becomes Superman because of the, the morals he was taught by Jonathan and Martha, because of the upbringing they gave him. So this moment is that in a nutshell. I do think it's weird that this one scholarship was Clark's only shot. Mm -hmm. We know financial aid exists in this world. Chloe got it. Yep. Right. Arguably, there are other types of scholarship you can get into that would not be 
an egregious use of Clark's powers and abilities. Some sort of grant, some sort of fellowship. Hell, being from the farm, I mean, there's got to be some 4-H there's thing. Pro- yeah, there's probably some sort of grant program he right. could be a part of. Or student loans, I mean, I know they suck right now, but still it's a thing that a lot of kids did. But also, if your farm is like failing every year, there's got to be some sort of government program of you've got to learn to be smart so you can go back and support the farm that is arguably part of America's natural food resources. Like there's something else out there beyond just playing sports. But the point remains that this is a great moment of Jonathan saying, you did the right thing. We're going to do the right thing. We're a family. We're in this together. Yep. Uh, we then get the scene where Lana apparently has told Lex she's ready for the truth. And Lex shares a picture he has of Genevieve Teague and Jason Teague together in Paris the day before Jason and Lana met, which completely contradicts the story Jason told Lana that he hadn't seen his mother in months at that point. And so all this time that Jason has been saying, I'm starting to worry that my mother is the reason we're together has been a play because he apparently was in on it. Now, I do question, how do we know that was actually the day before they, like, how did Lex get that picture? Could it be doctored in some way? It looks doctored because it probably isn't a real picture with with the actor and the actresses. So I kind of, I kind of question Lana's gullibility that she would just believe it, but it does kind of start to question. And he asked the question. You have to ask yourself, Lana. How well do you really know Jason Teague? Again, odd scene here. Lex wants Jason on his payroll, but he doesn't want Jason and Lana together. Why is he playing all these people against each other? But the bigger concern here is why is Lana choosing to believe Lex? She is constantly saying, I want someone I can trust. Lex is not a good person. He's got a lot of moments in this season where he is trying to show he can be better. But there are four plus years. He's not been a good person. He has lied to her. Yes, there was that weird dynamic where she ran the talent for him. But on more than one occasion during the four years of this show, he has done some dirty underhand things that have not been good to Lana or anybody else. So why is she saying, I don't want to be in a relationship with someone who lies all the time, but yet she can believe Lex. So there are some things, again, I know you don't watch every single episode. There are some things that that could be weighed against that, that they have actually had a kind of a decent relationship together. Mm -hmm. But I do agree in, 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 uh, in point that he has done some things and apparently everything in Smallville, everyone knows everything. So all the things he's done that isn't related to her, she apparently, she should still know there should still be enough. She shouldn't be so ready to believe him. I guess I I agree with you there. So we go back to the farm at the loft. Lois stops by uh, to say thank you because, you know, he saved her life apparently. Uh, But turns out she's not going back to school. She still got punted as she says, because she's had prior uh, issues with the disciplinary board uh, but she has nowhere to go and she starts giving the sob story. And it's very Lois. It's very funny the way she sort of like talks about this. And I can do that. And of course I can, it's like this really sad puppy song. And then Clark almost like not realizing what he's saying, like, well, I guess if you need a place to stay. And then she's like, yep, great. Thanks. I'm gonna go take a shower. 
And then we get the funny line of Clark saying, it just happened. And it's silly, but it's really good for their relationship and where things are going. And obviously it keeps her around, which is what we need for the show. Um, and I just really, again, I really like Lois from the, from the pilot episode of, or the season premiere of uh, season four. I have loved her every time. And I think this is a very Lois thing to do. And I just enjoy it. Yeah, this was a great scene. I thought it was a little odd that he tried to interrupt her in the middle of her story. Like, was he going to say, you can stay here at that point? Mm-hmm. And then that kind of weakens like that. Oh, I just got taken. Bamboozled. bamboozled. But the, the the ending of it just happened. <laughs> it was so casual. It was so real. Like, it was just a great delivery. It was a great punchline to that scene. Uh, then we get what is my favorite moment of the episode. So we're back at Smallville High and Chloe is coming down from the upper floor and Clark comes around the corner into view. And it's very clear by the acting that Chloe's looking for Clark. Like she's like almost exaggerated my Marceau Marceau level. <laughs> like, oh, there he is. And I just love the fact that she is so blatantly trying to find Clark to casually run into him. So she can share the news that she got her financial aid and she will also be going to Metropolis University. And this is when Clark shares that he's actually decided not to play football. And Chloe is extremely proud of him and, you know, kind of says something. And Clark's even like, you've been saying a lot of weird things to me lately, which I think is a really funny line because obviously she knows and he doesn't know that she knows yet. Uh, And then she just sort of says, you know, he says, why do you think I'm destined to do anything? And she's like, "Ah, it's just a hunch. And of course, this is a situation in real life, Clark would be like, no, you've been acting really weird. Tell me. And they would continue (laughs) this conversation until she finally says, okay, I know you're super, but because this is a show, we just end there and we don't have to figure out like how that scene would have actually ended. This is a really good moment in their friendship. A lot of this season has been kind of rebuilding their friendship. So this is a very good back and forth between them. It's a very natural conversation. And it's really nice that we as an audience know that knows that Chloe knows about Clark. So she's trying to drop the hints that I can help you. I'm proud of you. I know what's going on. And he's just not picking up on it yet. Yeah. Yeah. He's a dummy. Clark, he's a lovable dummy. Clark is such a dummy. He's so dumb. And then we get the weirdest scene in the entire episode. And it's a good scene and it's a powerful scene but it makes no damn sense. So we go back to Metropolis University. Clark is inside the stadium all alone while we get another needle drop, which on the end of my internet search, it was untitled by Simple Plan, but you found the title. What's the name of the song? Uh, I think it's, how could this happen to me? How could this happen? So those are some of the lines. So he's like, maybe I'm, I'm fading away. How could this happen to me? And, you know, Clark is kind of looking forlorn. and he's in the stadium where earlier there was a marching band and cheerleaders and the coaches, and he was going to play here, and his name was on the PA system, and now he's in this empty stadium looking around. And it's a nice scene to see that he has given up the street. Like, that's what's happened. He's decided he can't do it. It's what he's always wanted. It was in the palm of his hand. All he had to do was take it, and he did the mature thing and said, you know what, I can't take the risk. But where it comes in the scene Makes no sense. So he had to run back to Metropolis. He broke into the stadium. He turned on all the lights just to stand there forlorn while the music, like was the music playing over the PA? Was this like the <laughs> diegetic music? It, it's a cool scene, but it just, it didn't need to be here. And I wish, I kind of wish it had just ended with Chloe's just a hunch 
I don't think we need this thing for as much as I like it, it because it makes no sense to me. I think it would be better without it. Yeah, I agree. He's also wearing different clothes from when he was in Metropolis earlier, when he was at the stadium, when all this stuff happened. Maybe he packed bags and was at in planning to be in Metropolis for a couple of days. Sometimes shows mess around with a cold open or a tag scene and they're well they put them at the end of an episode they happen in the middle of the episode or something like that so maybe he took a walk before he left metropolis after this whole jeff thing happened and the stadium was open and he just meandered through but why would then no one be there like i get the point of the scene especially with that song super whiny emo song how could this happen to me I just want to scream like this is him kind of saying, I want all of this, but I'm stopping myself from having it. I'm super sad about it. Yep. Like it, it's a good scene for Clark. But if this episode had ended on Chloe saying, just got a hunch, far better episode. Yep. I think so as well. So that pretty much wraps it up. So final thoughts or anything you want to go back to, you circle back uh, to touch on for what might be the third time. uh good episode um very entertaining not perfect by any means but really great moments throughout which is i think pretty fair for a lot of smallville uh great show great episode for clark's story even though it was kind of a sad part of his story watching him learn to make a tough decision for the right reason is a big part of seeing that development from human to Superman. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm very mixed on this episode. I love the metaphor of what Jeff represents. It is a comparison one-to-one to Clark and to see what the pressure would do and help Clark make the right decision that he should have made even before he joined the high school football team is great. I just feel like the, the script needed another pass. It needed yeah. more connective tissues. It, we could have done without some other things. We didn't need that last scene. We could have used that time to give us a little bit more connective tissue so the other stuff made sense. Yeah. So I do, I like the idea of it. I don't like the execution of it. So overall, I'm pretty mixed on this episode. Yeah. Uh, so this brings us to our man versus Superman. Again, you've done this before. Everybody listening probably knows, but I think that's what the creators were going for in these early seasons is Clark's you know, journey of trying to decide, can he be a man or is he destined to be Superman? So with that in mind, do you have any thoughts about this episode? Well, this is him choosing not necessarily to be super. I don't think he knows that is his destiny yet, but it is him recognizing that he cannot be human. Mm -hmm. The, The true story of Superman is a God trying to be human and dealing with the weight of How do I deal with my powers? How do I make choices for my powers? But how do I also blend in with these people? How do I act human? How do I not become a dictator, an overlord, like we've seen in multiple Elseworld, other world stories? Mm -hmm. So this is very much a, I know I cannot be what I want. So what is next? I very much agree. I think that's exactly what this episode does. It he, it forces him to choose, not necessarily Superman, but it, it forces him to choose against the man part of him because he's always wanted to play football. He had everything. He had the dream. And then he had to make the decision because he's not a human to give up that dream. And I think that very clearly is what we're seeing here. 
All righty. So now it's time for our Pass the Torch question. So what would you like me to ask next week's co-host? If you were being recruited by a sports team or equivalent organization, what would the seduction team try to sway you with? Excellent. So, Caleb, again, it's always a pleasure to have you on the microphones. I am still so sorry that I had to have you on here twice in a couple of days. <laughs> okay. I, I hate that part of your time. Uh, but let people know where they can find you on the internet if they want to come chat with you about any of the various projects. I know one of the things that you've started since last time you were on is a charity organization that you are part of. So here's your time. Tell people all about it. Yeah, thank you. I love being here. Thank you for the time. <clears throat> so you can find me on the socials at DKLG. You can hear me uh, on the RPG Academy as well. Uh, all of the old shows, the old actual plays, but also uh, I'm trying to get back into some of the detentions, into some of uh, the new sample adventures that we're starting over there. Hopefully we can continue to do some more stuff um, through this year and into next year. You can hear me on the Identico podcast, uh, Twitch, and YouTube channels. That's Identico, I-D-E-N, and T-E-C-O. To spell it every time, I can never spell it right. Identico is a cyberpunk role-playing game. Uh, I am part of their Twitch show called Chaos Incorporated. We are between seasons right now. We should be kicking off season two uh, sometime in July, I believe. Uh, but season one uh, aired on Twitch and is now slowly being uploaded to YouTube, according to all those rules. Uh, but other than that, I have started a new charity program called Point Five Past. The website is point5past.org. The socials are P, the number five past, so P5 past. What we do, we are uh, inspired by Star Wars, and that's where the name came from. Uh, we are a tabletop and entertainment creative team where we are making games, gaming resources. Uh, we're going to be doing some podcasts later this year, like some actual dramas fully produced. Uh, we're going to be doing some writing, some, some short fiction, some novellas. Just like most other podcasts out there, we are putting all of this creative work out there for free. But instead of asking you to support us through a Patreon or PayPal or, or Ko-Fi or whatever, we are asking that you give money to a charity if you like what we do. So right now we are working with a charity called Pelotonia, pelotonia.org. Uh, they are an excellent fund for uh, driving amazing cutting edge cancer research. Started right here in Ohio, been going strong for 12 years, raised so much, so much money, done amazing, amazing work. So if you go to our website, 0.5past.org or hit us on the socials, when you uh, click on the charity link, it will take you right to them. And any money you donate goes directly to them. There's no middleman, no money comes to us, and then we give them a check or anything. All we're saying is, hey, we love the work we do to write, to create, to podcast. We love this charity. If you like anything we do, or if you feel like giving us five bucks, go give it to this charity, please. So that is point five past. I will be riding in uh, Pelotonia's annual bike ride this August over my birthday, uh, so that that's kind of what Pelotonia does every single year. Um, I am I am very happy to create this new team and to be supporting our our colors and and be there on the road with everybody else. So that's what we're doing. 
All right. And as always, there'll be links in the show notes to all of that stuff. Um, so you can go help support uh, Pelotonia and cancer research because again, you know, screw cancer. Uh, it affects pretty much everybody at some point. So yep. uh, anything we can do to help out would be great. Um, as for me, you can find me at the RPG Academy is where I find most of the stuff that I do, except for this show, of course, which has its own Facebook, its own Twitter, and its own email, smallvillefancast at gmail.com. Um, if you want to come talk to me, Twitter is the best place or Discord. Again, I know it's very heavy RPG related, but I'd love to get some more people on the Discord that is that are coming to it from Farm to Fable. My, our Discord is absolutely my favorite corner of the internet. It's just yes. a bunch of people who love our show and like what we do. So they're very like-minded and we talk about the stuff that we love. So we talk about Disney shows and movies and we have a, a channel for memes and for our pets and for food. It's just a really fun little place. And I enjoy all the people that are there. So if you'd like to hang out and talk more farm to fable, that would be a place to do it. Uh, just a reminder that in our show notes, we will be including the um, the link to the Trevor project, um, the information about the Texas, the text crisis line, and then the, the number to the national suicide prevention hotline. So if you or someone, you know, might need any of those resources, we want to make them available to you. And then finally, just remember to stay after the end credits for the scoreboard. Farm to Fable is a Smallville rewatch fan cast and is not officially affiliated with DC Comics, Warner Brothers Television, the CW Network, or any other owners of Smallville and or its related source materials. As such, these companies retain sole ownership of all symbols, images, names, logos, and other proprietary material related to Smallville. Our use of logos, images, names, likenesses, and sound clips are being used under the Fair Use Guidelines. Our logo was created by Michael Waldschlager II. You can find Michael on Twitter at LoserMLW. Farm to Fable is written, edited, and produced by me, Michael Ross, with additional input by weekly co-hosts as credited in each episode's show notes. And now, let's check the scoreboard. Total number of vehicles wrecked. We're still at 61 with no new wrecks this week. Total number of times a person has been knocked unconscious. We're still at 203 with no new unconsciousnesses this week. Uh, looking at our main cast, Lana has been knocked unconscious 22 times. Lex, 18 times. Clark, 14 times. Jonathan Kent, 12. Chloe, 12. Martha, 6. Lionel Luther, 3. Jason Teague, 3. Lois, twice. Total number of times someone goes to the hospital. We're now at 86 with MetU football player David Coop Cooper going there after being paralyzed by Jeff Johns, though it's thought it was due to his being kicked by Lois. And then later we learned that Lois was released from the hospital after almost drowning while under the paralysis effect of Jeff. So looking at our main cast, Alana has been to the hospital eight times. Chloe's been there six. Jonathan Kent has been there six. Lionel Luther has been there five. Lex has been four. Martha, three. Clark, three. Jason Teague, twice. And Lois, once. And finally, the total number of times Clark tells or shows someone other than Lana his abilities, we're now at 89 with three asterisks.